The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Well, as is our practice, we read a psalm together in the morning, um, and we did again this morning before being led in prayer by Pastor Frank, and often the psalm is chosen in view of our um, and one of our times of study, be it the first or second hour. However, the relationship of the psalm to our studies varies depending on the nature of where we are in a given text or in the sweep of a more systematic study. But today, the relationship is, is preciously clear, as our text, like that of Psalm 84, centers on a desire for God's special presence among his people. And I'm going to read again, portions of Psalm 84 to further season this matter, and then I'm going to immediately read Psalm 24, which more closely complements our text today, Psalm 15, which I'll read immediately after Psalm 24, because I want you to hear and even have a measure of response to that affectionate longing for God's presence expressed and experienced in his tent so long ago. I want you to feel the longing of a worshiper who hears the questions that such an ambitious desire provokes. Namely, who may ascend into the mountains of Yahweh? Who may arise in his holy place? Who may sojourn in his tent? Who may dwell on his holy mountain? So once more, portions of Psalm 84, really just the first and second half there, and then immediately thereafter, Psalm 24, and then Psalm 15. So again, just by way of refresher, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Yahweh of hosts. Again, our focus is on that affectionate longing for God's special presence and who belongs there, because that's where we want to be. How, lo- how lovely are your dwelling places, O Yahweh of hosts. My soul is longed and even fainted for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the bird has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she sets her young at your altars. O Yahweh of hosts, my King and my God, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. And so again, yeah, I know you may have just seen pictures or templates or, or, or uh, images of the tabernacle, but you, you start to get that idea, don't you? Those courts that you enter into, the, the altars there, the, the, the dynamics associated with worship, how precious that is. And he continues on, See our shield, O God, look upon the face of your anointed, for better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. You know, there's children and even adults, there's places that, boy, I just want to get back there. There's fond memories, there's longing. But listen to the psalmist, for better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would choose to stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now we move on to Psalm 24 of David, a psalm. The earth is Yahweh's as well as all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh? It's a really good question and a valuable one. And who may rise in his holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall lift up a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Pay heed, O Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? 
Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift your, your, yourselves up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. And now Psalm 15, which will be our principal text for this morning. A Psalm of David. O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy mountain? He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes are reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. I recall, and this is um, becoming further and further away, I I think about things like um, uh, praying for Christ Church in Ghana and thinking about the the stability they've had since the 90s, and I thought, wow, that's so recent. And it's not so recent anymore. And I think about um, back in uh, my freshman year of college, and um, it seems recent, but it's not that recent now. But I recall memorizing Psalm 15 my freshman year. And it wasn't because it was an assignment, but because it really just struck a special chord in its directness. And at the heart of, the, as a, at the heart of it were questions that I, I wanted to answer myself. I wanted to, to, to have those questions uh, properly asked and properly answered. Specifically, again, who may sojourn in Yahweh's tent? And who may dwell on his holy mountain? Those are very important questions, particularly if you can read and affirm the glorious beauty of God's presence as we've heard expressed in Psalm 84 and now 24 and 15 this morning. So again, this pair of questions skillfully directs the worshiper to what they must do as God's presence is their great ambition. And I want to pause here for just a moment to consider the nature of this opening a bit further, because I think this is something, uh, there's something to be said for what a well-expressed, a well-expressed question not only asks, but what it communicates. So usually think of a question, it's drawing out information, but a good question is also delivering a lot of information in its efforts to draw further information. And I also want to encourage you in this regard, because asking good questions, that's a skill. It's a skill that can be developed. I remember um, listening to, I I enjoy listening to professional interviewers, not just talking heads, not people that rant about their opinions, but somebody that's really good at the craft of asking questions to draw the best information. And I remember listening to one, and the only criticism that this particular interviewer received was, you're really good. The only thing you can do better is to continue to do it. And so I thought, wow, that's a, there's a skill to this. And there's, there's good questions have a skill to them. That's necessarily accompanied also by a measure of knowledge or understanding. So again, somebody that interviews an author, they don't just say, so tell me about your book or what's your book about? No. Now, a good interviewer has already read the book. They've thoroughly examined the book. They know about the author. They know about the author's background. They know all kinds of information. And then now they're going to ask good questions. And so there's a skill to good questions, and there's a measure of knowledge or understanding, all of which can be matured in and throughout one's life, both the skill of asking good questions and the knowledge or understanding to inform them as well. 
But there's another element that needs to be considered here in terms of the nature of the questions that we're looking at, namely the heart that these questions reflect. And questions will reflect uh, motivation, they will reflect uh, somebody's affections and thoughts, but especially a question posed toward Yahweh. So valuable questions of this nature have skill, knowledge, and heart. They're not arbitrary conversation fillers like, mm, not really sure how to engage this person, so how, how was your drive to church today? You might genuinely be interested, or it might just be you're trying to figure out how to, to prime that pump, as it were. So they're, they're not arbitrary question or conversation fillers or uninformed musings expressed in such a way so as to solicit information for you to satisfy one's curious and casual information. No, this is a, a skillful, knowledgeable question that's informed by a heart that wants to know certain things. Now, the skill expressed here is in David's asking two concise questions. So can, uh, you understand that being concise eludes me. And so I'm particularly interested in, wow, that, there's something to that, to be able to get all this that's rattling around and then wanting to be expressed and just to, to, to squeeze it into these two very skillful, concise questions. And then they are two questions that complement one another and that will secure his life's great ambition. Because, And when I say that, it's because David was... Not just a warrior, not just a, a magnificent leader. He was a worshiper. And so his life ambition was to be a worshiper. And what many of us would be struggling to articulate in a wealth of words, David expresses with a simple poetic beauty. He has captured what the worshiper longs to know. Again, Yahweh, who may sojourn or, or who may dwell in your presence? And this pair of questions was rooted in an abundance of contextual insights expressed in referencing Yahweh's tent and his holy mountain. Two literal places that do not need to be spiritualized or referenced as metaphors. Like, oh, this is, an, uh, this is a picture uh, or a, a concept of God's special presence. Now, they were actual experiences that David would have intimately known. David was speaking of what, he, again, he knew, namely that there was a holy mountain that he could walk and a tent that he could enter, both of which were intimately identified with the covenant God of Israel who had made himself known as Yahweh. And David had a direct hand in these consecrated places of worship as it was under his leadership that they were established as such. And yet there was no presumption of his right to sojourn or dwell among them because David knew the nature and character of God. Therefore, he also knew that there were expectations that must be satisfied. So even though under his leadership was this mountain secured, under his leadership was this particular tent pitched, he didn't treat that as a presumption to come into the Lord's special presence, thereby demonstrating that these concise pairing of questions were also packed with theological conclusions. So he's not just saying, again, I heard you wrote a book. What's it about? That's a lousy interviewer. That's terrible. Rather, there are conclusions with when you wrote this, this particular book, it appears that these things from your background and these, these political convictions or these socio socioeconomic matters or this point of interest influenced particularly this chapter when you developed this point. Now that's a skillful thing and it's got a lot of conclusions that are introduced into it and I want you to see that that's exactly what David's doing. He's not just saying, boy, I want to be a worshiper. Well, God, what do I have to do to enjoy your presence? No, he's packing it with theological conclusions. And while we return to the matters of the expectations expressed and drawn out from these questions, Allow me to first speak to David's relationship, again, to both Yahweh's tent 
and his holy mountain here. First, the holy mountain is also known as Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the beloved city that David secured early in his unified reign over Israel, as recorded in 2 Samuel 5. There was actually a measure of mocking. Let David try and come here. The, the lame and the blind will oppose him. And he took the city. And yet there was no presumption that he possessed some inherent right to dwell in Yahweh's holy mountain, as it were, an expression of enjoying his special presence among his people. And as to the tent, this was a tent that David had pitched for the Ark of the Covenant and need not, it doesn't need to be confused with the tabernacle, which at this point in time was some six miles away. And this came about because many years before, the Ark of the Covenant had been taken into battle as though it were some magnificent good luck charm. You remember um, Samuel was fairly young and you have Eli and you have Israel going into battle with the Philistines and they're like, we're not doing well, break out the ark. And they get the ark of the covenant and the Philistines are like, oh no. And then what do they do? They defeat Israel and they take the ark of the covenant. It was lost in battle to the Philistines and remained with them for seven months. You know, sometimes we do our Bible reading and it's like, it was taken, it was brought back. As though it just were like, you know, what a long day. This is seven months. And we have this recorded in 1 Samuel 4 through 6. However, on account of the Philistines suffering plagues and judgments, they restored the Ark of the Covenant to Israel by returning with it also some sacrificial, if not strange, gifts, as it were, little tumors and mice made of gold. But the Ark of the Covenant initially went to Beth or Bet Shemesh, and soon thereafter it was transferred to Kirith Jerim where it remained for approximately 20 years. Again, it's easy to flip those chapters, but this was 20 years that it was, and seemingly, down the road, wrong place. And we have this recorded in 1 Samuel 6 through 7. This portion of the Ark um, of the Covenant's history also overlaps with King Saul's reign. And then approximately 20 years later, when David was made king of Israel, he initially attempted to move the Ark of the Covenant in an unlawful way. You're familiar with that? almost mimicking the Philistines' model of transporting the Ark. We, we can forgive a pagan for doing pagan-like treatment of the Ark of the Covenant, but David ought to have known better. And this cost Uzziah his life, or Uzzah his life, and the Ark of the Covenant was left at the house of Obed-Edom Obed for three months, as we've recorded in 2 Samuel 6. David had honorable intentions... Again, he was, he was enthusiastic. He was a worshiper. He was excited. He wasn't just like... Would somebody get me the ark? No, he was excited. He wanted it brought back. He wanted it brought in. He saw its blessings and he saw what it would be identified with. And he was honorable as intentions, but even as an enthusiastic worshiper, he failed. But he learned when he failed. Recognizing his offense and his original attempt at moving the ark of the covenant, David again moved it, but this time correctly and successfully to Jerusalem, to the city of David and placed it inside the tent that he had pitched for it. 2 Samuel 6.17 states, And they brought in the ark of Yahweh and placed it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Yahweh. Therefore, from the time that the ark of the covenant was sent into battle until Solomon's temple, the ark of the covenant and the tabernacle were geographically separated by approximately six miles and were ultimately reunited in Jerusalem. Worship continued at both locations, on Mount Zion, the tent established by David that was housing the Ark of the Covenant, and at the tabernacle, as we have recorded in 1 Chronicles 16 and 2 Chronicles 5. 
So we have this extraordinary place in which God's special presence dwelt among his people. And though David had a consequential role in both the securing of the mountain and the pitching of the tent, he also understood whom he was engaging. And as a mature worshiper, he knew his role was not only to ask, or excuse me, was only to ask and never to presume. It wasn't that, Lord, when they mocked me, I took the city, the city that's now the most well, still, the most historically consequential city in history, the, the beloved city, the, the city in which the son of David will, will take his throne and rule and reign from. And Lord, you, you know that when the, the ark was, you know, left, as it were, in just this little uh, remote area, I brought it back and I pitched a unique or a special tent for it there. He doesn't engage with a measure of presumption. Rather, he's asking, Lord, who's fit to enjoy your special presence. David knew that he may in this moment be the king of Israel, but he was beseeching the king of glory, Yahweh of hosts. And we get a view to that back again with Psalm 24, where he's also asking, Lord, who can enjoy your presence? And then he immediately is declaring, this is the king of glory. Regarding this, this how to approach the king of glory and not not embracing some presumption as it were, Charles Spurgeon stated the following, The unthinking many imagine it to be a very easy matter to approach the Most High. And when professedly engaged in His worship, they have no questionings of heart as to their fitness for it. But truly humbled souls often shrink under a sense of utter unworthiness and would not dare to approach the throne of the God of holiness if it were not for Him, our Lord, our Advocate, who can abide in the heavenly temple because His righteousness endureth forever. This isn't a, I'm going to stroll in to the presence of God like I'm going to Walmart in the middle of the night and I'm joining the pajama clan, as it were. This is a sobering awareness of whom you are engaging. And the context in which we can engage is because of the finished work of the Son. And that too is not something, well, now we're, you know, I'm, we're joint heirs with Christ. I think John understood that and yet he it's falling as though he were a dead man before the glorious Christ. And with this, we can also better appreciate David's skill and knowledge in his pairing of questions. But as is often the case with a good question, we also learn something of the one asking it, too. And good theological questions reveal and or betray the nature of one's heart. And so what is asked and why it's asked and how it's asked will tell you a lot about the one doing the asking. So David's heart is plainly laid bare here. He is a humble worshiper who wants to secure the very essence of his life's mission. And so he asks, O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? Again, excellent questions. It's always satisfying if you're asking a question in Sunday school and Frank doesn't just look at you like... But if he says, ah, that's a good question. It's like, oh, yes, that's good. I drew something out. I, I maybe directed the conversation in a way that was helpful. These were excellent questions. Excellent questions that will shape this small psalm and that are not left unanswered. Even so, there are various ways that commentators have expressed their understanding of the function of these questions within the psalm. Um, among those, Arnold Rhodes, who's well-respected for his work in the Psalms, he concludes that Psalm 15 is a, he re- a, regards it categorically as a liturgical psalm. 
Um, we don't necessarily have categories that the psalmist uh, would say, this is how I want you to view it. It's a way for us to um, identify and kind of uh, codify the, the various structures and patterns of given psalms. He would say it's more of a liturgical psalm and that part of this liturgy would be that the worshiper, the sojourner and guest, ask these questions and that the attending priest would provide the responses which he observed, quote, stresses the ethical imperatives of the law and the prophets. Which, again, I think that's a really reasonable conclusion. However, I'm persuaded that this is more likely a wisdom psalm in which the worshiper is providing a context in which wisdom can be brought to bear on this expression of life, a conclusion that maybe James is nudging me toward. I recognize I'm partial. Um, I, I, my favorite book right now, James. A couple months ago, Second Peter, Jude, before that, First Peter. I recognize there's a clear partiality to this, but nevertheless, I do think that maybe there's something to that to regard it as a wisdom psalm. Again, um, I think there's good merit to that, as hopefully we'll continue to see. So while there was the implicit understanding that one had better be ceremonially prepared to engage God, this was not ultimately the central issue so much as, one, as it was one's heart. We recognize that if for no other reason the, the scribes and the Pharisees and religious leaders, boy, if somebody was uh, caught up and focusing on uh, the, the uh, ritualistic preparations, they were buttoned up. And, you know, Paul even talks about his state of unbelief, that as to the law, I was, I was a Pharisee. I was, I was perfect in my fulfillment of it. I was, I was faithful. When you, want to, you know what faithfulness looks like? Look at my former life. There was no apologizing for his fulfilling that expression of it. The problem is it was deficient because it's always been the matter of one's heart. And I would argue that another Psalm of David draws this out quite plainly. We see this in Psalm 51, where David, with a broken heart, addresses repentance and restoration, noting that his restoration before God comes from a changed and humbled heart and not from the blood of sacrifices. Now, that's not to say, well, you know, the law was kind of nice. You know, it kind of governed the day to day, but the real issue is the heart. They don't need to, to, to separate them and, and to create some kind of dichotomy between the two. Rather, there's obedience and there's heart behind obedience. And the emphasis will always be on the heart behind it. I would also argue that we see this with Ezekiel as he expresses Israel's final cure is that of a heart transplant from stone to flesh. And finally, we see this with the incarnate God himself as he flustered the masters of the law who failed to understand its greater heart and intent. Not that he was abandoning it, it's just that they missed the heart behind it. Again, Jesus not disregarding but fulfilling the law also called other to its, others to its fuller fulfillment that requires changed hearts. This is the wisdom that fleshes out the body of this psalm. David is not simply providing broad qualifications that answer general questions. Rather, he is offering, I would argue, wisdom for skillful, truth-informed, and heart-revealing inquiries of the worshiper. So whereas Rhodes understands the psalm to be a liturgical question and answer exchange between the worshiper and priest, Kyle and Dulch make a case that it's not necessarily a question posed to the priest as to Yahweh. And that's a big distinction and one that I would concur with in terms of my own efforts of study and work through the text. It's not asking the priest, who can come into this as though it's a, a reciting back and forth, which there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's actually value and merit to that. But I think it's more of asking, as the text plainly reads, asking Yahweh. That's the most direct and, again, natural reading of the psalm, though, again, it may have a, 
uh, secondary liturgical function adopted by way of worshipful reflection and speaking truth to one another. I recognize there's a place for that, that speaking truth and reciting back to one another. But I think ultimately this is an engagement of Lord, Yahweh, who's fit? How can they engage you? How can they enjoy your special presence? Now, let's pause for just a moment so that we can appreciate what we have here in verse 1. David provides um, what I would again argue is a pair of skillful questions or questions that are skillful, they're knowledgeable, and express the humble heart of a worshiper who desires to be in the Lord's presence. That's what we've introduced. That's how he opens this psalm. And it's a very important um, opening, as it were, a foundation. So we've given it time accordingly. And what we're going to go on to see in the following verses are, first, a thesis-like answer in verse 2. A thesis-like answer that expresses three affirmed actions. So he doesn't just pose a question and say, I just wonder. No, he poses a question and then he goes on to unpack that. And I would argue verse 3 kind of gives us the heart of the answer. And then that's followed by um, three more affirmed actions in verse 4. And they're followed by two final um, abstaining actions in verse 5, which are also provide or give way to the conclusion. So again, once more, hopefully this will be clear. You do have it up on the screen on the slides. David provides a pair of opening questions, a three-part thesis-like answer, a three-part build-out of the thesis expressing abstained actions, things you don't do, a three-part build-out of the thesis expressing affirmed actions, things you do do, and then a two-part build-out of the thesis expressing, again, two more abstained actions and finally a conclusion. And so what he's doing is saying, Who can do these things? Who can enjoy your special presence? He gives a core answer, and then he develops it with positive and negative actions, and then he drives us to a conclusion. So we have our opening now and a map for the work before us. But before we move on, I would encourage us all to consider how we might mimic David's questions and in such mimic his engagement of the Lord. And in considering this, I think back to an experience I had watching a fellow investigator re-interview a suspect who we were all convinced that he was shamefully guilty. This was a um, a grotesque offense, almost caught red-handed, and it just, it was, we, we got the bad guy. Okay, good enough. And I just couldn't seem to draw out really good enough information to advance the case in the way that we needed to. We we had a lot of circumstantial, but I needed to cross the bridge to something better. And I was asking questions, and I was interviewing, and um, I just wasn't getting there. I wasn't drawing out what we needed. It just, he was, he was defeating my efforts, or so it seemed. And so, a friend of mine who had a lot more skill and experience, he says, I'm, I want to I want to crack at him, as it were. And it wasn't that exciting. He just said, I want to talk to him. But um, and, and because of that, I was in an observation area as I watched and listened as he exercised a clearly superior skill in the art of interviewing a suspect. I was, I was really engaged. I thought, well, this is really fun to watch to the point where um, I recorded the interview or secured a copy of the recording of the interview, not just for my case file, but also so that I could... I want to learn, how does he ask questions that are going to draw the right information out? And ultimately, he did not get what we expected of the man either, and it turned out he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And without being too rude, he was a bit of an idiot because he put himself in a horrible, a terrible situation in which he utterly lacked the skills to live well, much less to get himself, he put himself in a really bad situation. But he didn't do it. 
So be careful. There's a good reason for presumption of innocence. But nevertheless, I remember that, that experience of watching because we knew oh, there's something there. It's going to be drawn out. It's going to be drawn out. If, and if he can draw it out, then I want to watch and learn how. And there was much to be learned. And as worshipers now, I hope you're having a like experience with David here. He's asking the questions that we might also ultimately agree are best, but with a unique skill, a sharp insight, and a heart that knows and loves his God. So are you not grateful that he did ask these questions, as it were, not just for himself, but for all of us who would want to and pursue to be worshipers? When he asked, O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent, who may dwell on your holy mountain, those are really good questions. And as a worshiper, those are the kind of questions that I want to I think like that. I want to understand how to draw that out, how to, to have the, the proper skill, the information, and the heart to so approach the Lord because those are the answers I need. And those answers are, again, they're there, but you might need a little bit more skill, a little bit more insight, a little bit more understanding to even know how to draw them out. And so I think there's a really good place for watching and learning how to pray well, how to think well, how to engage the scriptures well, and examples such as this. And with this, we come to what I consider the thesis-like answer to David's pair of questions in verse 2. He states, he answers, He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. That's who. Now, as I stated earlier, it did not take much persuading to nudge me to the conclusion that this could be considered a wisdom psalm. And while I want to let Psalm 15 stand on its own, it needs to. It should be allowed to. And I need to let the book of James to stand on its own. It needs to. It should be allowed to. I still appreciate the larger continuity of the scriptures. And I see an expression of this broad continuity here as both David and James speak very plainly about the patterns of life that please God. Here in verse 2, we have walk, work, and speak, matters that will go on to be further developed through the body of the psalm, and in such, demonstrate a clear focus on the faithful service and engagement of others by way of not slandering, not doing evil, not taking up a reproach, despising evil, honoring those who fear the Lord, maintaining one's word, not taking unlawful interest, and not accepting bribes. Now maybe, I, well, not maybe, I do hope something's rattling around in that mind of yours. I hope you're thinking, wait, that sounds very James-like. I think James would think, hey, think, I wrote a letter talking about some of these similar things, didn't I? Remember our dear friend James and how he talks about pure and undefiled religion, love of neighbor, works, speech, finances, and friendship with God versus the world. Now, are they perfect parallels? Could we draw lines and say, oh, that, this is exactly like, no, but you can see the, the heart and the, the, the larger dynamic of, boy, these are very uh, of a like nature. Because I would argue they're both taking broad concepts and saying, this is how wisdom looks. This is how wisdom works itself out. I would argue both men reflect, are reflecting the heart of the godly through their engagement of others. And that's an important aspect of Psalm 15. It's clearly, dynamically, Lord, who, how can I dwell with you? 
And the response so much is about how do you deal and engage with others? And James, I want to be a perfect man. I want to be a righteous man, a mature man. And what does he say? How are you living with others? So both men reflecting the heart of the godly through their engagement of others and by way of demonstrable actions that testify of their walking in wisdom. David focusing on being fit for God's presence and James the demonstration of the mature man who walks in the wisdom from above. Intimately complementary objectives as the mature man is at his core a worshiper. He's not just a mature man that he's, he's wise and walks well. A mature man who is a slave of Christ is a worshiper. Now, with this in view, let's work through these three affirmed actions. He walks blamelessly. He does or works righteousness, that which is right before God. He speaks truth in his heart or his inner man. One who would sojourn or in, in Yahweh's tent or, or dwell in his holy mountain. I would argue that he has a Psalm 1 gate about him. You, you even have examples of this with which messenger is coming back from the battle to tell us, ah, oh, he's running like, and then I can't remember the name. Because there was a, a, a clear identify, I could tell that's him, but by the way he ran, by the way he walked. That's, worshipers, there's a clear gate about their, their walking through this life. They walk like a Psalm 1 man. But whereas Psalm 1 frames it in the negative, how the righteous man does not pattern his life or associate with the wicked, here it is in the affirmative, as they walk blamelessly. Further, as we observed in our study through Psalm 119 last year, walking uh, blamelessly is a blessed condition and rooted in the law of the Lord. Psalm 119.1, how blessed are those who way, whose way is blameless who walk in the law of Yahweh. So, walking blamelessly is the first element of the answer to who may sojourn in the Lord's tent or dwell in his holy hill. But can it be said of any man or woman that they, they truly walk blamelessly? Well, again, a bit partial, but I think James may be able to help us out here a bit. And he reminds us that we all stumble in many ways while also Doing something else. He doesn't just remind us of that. Oh, well, we're going to talk about walking and having a Psalm 1 gate. Well, you know what? We all stumble in many ways. But he doesn't leave it there. He expresses that with the expectation of us pursuing perfection, or as we've noted throughout our study, maturity. A process that is dependent upon the Lord as we look to him for wisdom. And I would argue that if any man was aware of his imperfections or his lack of a capacity to truly walk blamelessly, it would have been David. And yet he knew God and looked to him for mercy, for help, for wisdom, because the worshiper fit for sojourning, fit for dwelling, walks blamelessly. So David doesn't just ask a really skillful question just to get to a dead end. He who walks blamelessly and then, well, so much for that. He knew that there's blamelessness to be pursued. He knew there was maturity to be secured. And I would encourage us not to simply regard this as an ideal, but an expectation. Sometimes we, we, we frame something as though we can dismiss it. Well, that's an ideal. Well, it's an expectation. And let the tension remain there rather than in, in something less. So there will be tension when we say that it's expected. But I'd rather have the tension with it's expected and not really sure what that might look like outside of the wisdom of God giving us the grace to learn and to grow in that 
rather than the tension being that, well, he says that, but that's not really what he meant. He did, he did mean that. You want to walk in the presence of God? You want to enjoy a special presence? Better be blameless. And with this, I would conclude that walking blamelessly is having an irre irreproachable disposition or life that is tethered to faith in the Lord. Such a man is well on his way to enjoying the precious presence of the Lord. Next, we observe that he does what is right. A seemingly inseparable complement to walking blamelessly as they are effectively two elements of the same heart or conduct with the only distinguishable distinction perhaps being a, a general summary or pattern of life with walking and the more direct acting on right and the doing. Again, we hear James here with his consistent emphasis on demonstrable works, works that form patterns and patterns constituting the nature of one's walk. Increasingly righteous, increasingly mature, and thereby increasingly blameless. Next, we observe that he speaks truth in his heart. And I would say that um, any a plain reading of this, um, your own efforts and study, your reading and listening to various teachers and commentators and otherwise, you're, you're going to hear a very similar conclusion, and there's probably good grounds for that. <laughs> where the, this is take this, they take this element as stating that this man speaks the truth or what is right in a context of communicating to his fellow man. And I think that's true. I think that he's, he's one that speaks truth. But I, while I agree with this assessment, I think there's ultimately uh, something more that can be fleshed out here, specifically in view of how it's framed. He speaks truth in his heart. However, um, so we'll, let's look at that. And we have two examples um, of that same or at least like language being used elsewhere in the scriptures. They come in Genesis 24 and 1 Samuel 1. Two examples that we have in the scriptures of persons speaking in their hearts. Worded in a like manner as we see in this psalm. They are Abraham's servant that finds Rebekah for Isaac. He was praying. And his prayer was framed with, I was speaking in my heart. And Samuel's mother, Hannah, when she was pleading for a son, she was praying, language that was framed as she was speaking in her heart. I therefore conclude that speaking truth or faithfulness in one's heart or inner man perhaps should also, in addition to speaking truth to one another, that's true, and that's part of our engagement with one another, but it also should be considered as a reference to silently speaking truth or that which is right to the Lord in prayer. After all, what more naturally marks the worshiper and his foundational inquiries than being faithful, true, and deep-hearted in their prayers to the Lord? So these first three aff affirmation elements, walking blamelessly, working righteousness, and speaking truth constitute the core of the response to the opening pair of questions of the psalm. And the remainder of the psalm is an elaboration of these elements and unpacking of their application in various contexts. So as we consider the uh, verse 3 and its uh, three uh, abstained actions or actions that we're to avoid taking, I would encourage us to keep, also keep these opening elements in view here. So look at verse 3 with me. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So how do we think about that in view of that core foundation with verse 2? Well, speaks truth in his heart, equates with do not slander with his tongue, does what is right, equates with does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes a reproach against his friend. 
He has integrity. He has integrity in speech and in his general conduct. So again, he does not slander with his tongue. The scope uh, with which one can slander with one's tongue is, is quite broad, isn't it? We think about various tools that can be used for a number of different things. I think if anybody can find a, a broad use for various tools, Willem would probably be our, our master teacher in terms of you can use that not only for the intended purposes, but for five others. There's a lot of uses. There's a lot of applications for it. Well, you can think about that also in the, the negative con uh, expression of the slandering with the tongue. It has a broad range of expression uh, from proactive condescending speech, speaking false things, speaking that which would only cause harm, speaking out of anger and spite, and any other number of abuses toward others with our precious gift of speech. Remember, James is just, he's just walked us down this road. How incredibly dangerous and incredibly powerful the tongue is. And again, we're reminded of James and that destructive influence of the tongue when it's not brought under submission. That's impossible. Impossible but necessary. Impossible but necessary by means of the wisdom from above. Again, a matter that David ha will have no part in in terms of the slandering of the, with the tongue. He has no part in it as his great ambition is not to curse men made in God's image but to put but to praise their shared creator. How can you be a worshiper? How can you approach the special presence of God and have slander on your tongue? And when one feeds the strength of the tongue with praise to God, they're naturally robbing it of the heat that invigorates hell's flames, which would aim to light the tongue afresh and with an ever-increasing fury. And so basically it comes down to the Harrelson County wisdom of you don't feed it, it don't grow. You feed it, it will grow. What are you feeding it? If you're a worshiper, you speak truth in your heart. If you're a worshiper, you saturate it in things pleasing to God. You don't slander with your tongue. However, such is not, again, that's not the disposition of the worshiper longing for and pursuing God's presence. So it is said of him, he does not slander with his tongue. Now, an interesting observation here, a bit of a side fact here, but I thought it was interesting enough that I'll draw it out for a moment. Um, the fact that the term translated slander, if you just do a simple word study, it's most consistently translated as spying or engaging in clandestine or secretive work. That has led some people to, to different conclusions here. It can mean slander. It does mean slander. Slander is a good use here. Nevertheless, I recognize, again, that some words have a, a broad semantic range, and we need to be careful not to make much of such matters. We don't need to say, well, it can mean something over here, so I'm going to strip it of that context and put it over here. It's not how language works. It's not honoring the intent of the author. But I would say, what's the nature of slander? Well, it's the nature of a snake that strikes from the shadows. It's clandestine offender. It doesn't just come out and usually present itself. It, it bites when it finds the most opportune time. And we well know that secretive speech finds a public application. Slander doesn't just stay hidden. Oh, it finds its way to the surface. But here I'd remind you of my side observation regarding speaking truth in one's heart as well, which also is effectively, what kind of speech? It's secretive speech. Secretive speech that finds a public application. And for the worshiper, it is prayer and not slander that he's known for speaking silently and privately that in turn works itself out publicly and in the engagement of others because that's the one who desires to dwell in God's special presence 
The worshiper also does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Now, these are two separate elements, but I'm placing them together here as it appears to me that the verse is developing an increasingly narrower or more precise application here. The passage began more generally about not slandering with the tongue and then transitioned to not being evil or wicked or harmful toward a neighbor or someone more likely to have contact and or relationship with you. And then finally, it gets as intimate as friendship and states that this man does not take a reproach, attribute a disgrace, shame, scorn, or taunt a friend, a relationship whose intimacy only lacks the bond of family, but a relationship that is actively chosen to be engaged on in this close of a level. His relationship from the broad to the close to the intimate are honorable. That's the nature of a worshiper. And now we come to verse 4. And whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honor those who fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. So how do we think about if verse 2 is driving us to a thesis-like conclusion and these are all developing it, how do we think about that further? Well, walks blamelessly might correspond with in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Does what is right might correspond to honor those who fear Yahweh. Does what is right might also correspond to swears to his own hurt and does not change. So again, in his eyes, a vile person is despised and he has integrity in valuing others and in his commitments. So his general thoughts regarding someone who outright rejects the Lord and the things of the Lord is not ambiguous. He despises such a person. There's no fluff or flowery pretense. He despises the wicked. It's not that he is smug toward them or maintaining a harsh disposition. Rather, he simply has no regard for them. And ultimately, I would argue that this active discernment is part of righteous living and of having a proper understanding of that which is wicked, that which is vile. The faithful man is not just minding his own righteous self, but aware of the offenses of those who offend the Lord. And by way of complete contrast, he honors or properly recognizes and esteems the one who fears the Lord. Now, I'd like to pause for just a moment again and speak to this contrast. I think it's an important contrast. So a reprobate and a God-fearer. Because this contrast, again, it's it's quite striking, and it reveals a lot of the nature of the interpersonal relationships of a worshiper. So the one who rejects and despises the Lord and the one who has a sobering perspective and is overwhelmed by the Lord of glory. Not so as to be undone, because ultimately they are kept and God is good. But that's the only reason they're not undone. But with this in view, there's something to be said for also, I would say, fearing, genuinely fearing God. And I'm personally persuaded that fearing the Lord and or fearing God has been, again, not to cast disparagements toward people, but I think it's been commonly diminished to the idea of reverential respect, which is certainly a consequential element. That is part of fearing the Lord. But to see fearing God and fearing the Lord as reverence alone, in my understanding, fails to see that that precise word choice of the scriptures and attempts to resolve a tension that I would say was well suited to stay in place. I would rather try to struggle with fear God. I love God. God loves me. He's gracious toward me. He's, He's merciful. And yet I do fear him. After all, it's such a, is it such a strange thing that we should fear God Almighty? That's, that's nothing 
That's not strange to me. Not strange to me at all. I think it's a strange thing to say that we fear him exclusively in the context of our sin, albeit a context we can, cannot escape in this side of eternity. That to me is more strange. I do recognize there's a, a fear that is introduced by sin, but I don't think it's restricted to that. And to be clear, fearing God does not require persistent cowering, but a submission to an infinitely subordinate role before his holy perfections and righteousness. After all, God is every bit terrifying loving and good it's not my place to sort that out and the one that understands this finds himself honored in the company of the worshiper now i don't want to belabor this point unnecessarily but to help make my reasoning a little more clear because i know i'm not necessarily in the the popular vernacular on this one i would submit the following examples of fearing god genesis 22:12. Abraham's about to take Isaac's life by way, uh, by the Lord's command. But he stopped and he is commended. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Fear of God demonstrated an action. I don't know that, I don't know what degree of reverence would drive you to that expression of obedience. That expression of confidence that if necessary, God will bring my son back. I can see a holy fear taking you there. Not so scared that you're acting and trembling, but a, I'm not going to go, or I'm not going to lack confidence in what the God of glory has commanded me to do. Genesis 42, 18, Joseph concealing his identity from his brothers states that he is conducting himself in the manner that he is because I fear God. To me, that's not just, well, I'm going to act this way because I have a high respect for God. I fear God. Exodus 9.20, even the servants of Pharaoh were rushing to act before the Lord's judgment. We read, the one, um, the one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of Yahweh made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. That's not conduct of, well, you know what? The God of Israel, he's done some things that, are, that have struck my interest. I respect that God. I think they were terrified. That's not a bad place to be. 1 Kings 18.3, Obadiah feared Yahweh greatly and is demonstrated by his bold protection of the prophets when Jezebel was murdering them. There was going to be fear there. Jezebel or God. And it wasn't just, well, I, I don't respect Jezebel. I do respect God. I think he's, he's going to fear one or the other. And he feared God. And he goes on to state in verse 12 that he feared Yahweh from his youth. Makes for a good man. 2 Kings 17.34, not fearing the Lord resulted in not following or submitting or obeying his statutes, his rules or laws. And then Job 1, we see this repeatedly, verse 1, verse 8, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, Job was described as a man who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, consider other uses of the exact same term for fear being expressed toward other persons. In Genesis 32.11, Jacob expresses his fear of Esau when returning to his homeland, and he conducts himself as someone who is afraid. It was not, you know, he is, I know I secured the birthright, but you know what? I respect him. He's my older brother. He was terrified because the report from Esau was, when I see you, I will be the last thing you see. You're a dead man. He was praying for his deliverance. He was splitting his large party up. He was sending gifts ahead and using language of appeasement. He did not only respect Esau, he feared him. Same term applied toward God. 
Deuteronomy 7:19. The Lord will deal with the people who is who is Israel is afraid of. Excuse me. The Lord will deal with His people. Um, just as he dealt with the Egyptians, magnificent deliverance and defeat an enemy, a defeat of an enemy, hardly a people that they respected. Deuteronomy 20 verse 8, then the Lord, excuse me, then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, who is the man that is afraid and whose heart is faint? Let him go and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's heart melt like his heart. That's not respect, right? That's not you know, who has a high degree of respect for this matter that their heart is melting and that they're going to cause respect to spread through the camp? It's fear. Judges 7.3 So now come call out in the hearing of the people saying, whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. Again, this is fear, not respect. So while there may be a place for continued conversation here, I want to make it plain that it's a reasonable conclusion that there is a righteous esteeming of those who genuinely and plainly fear God with a fear that supersedes great reverence toward Him. I recognize reverence is part of it. I recognize you can't just take every use of fear and superimpose it on the expressions of the fear of God. I'm not trying to muddle that up. I just want to make the argument that we are approaching and worship the King of Glory. And I think if we had... And I know there was some silliness uh, when some of the British royalty were attending some NBA games. And well, you know what? We, they have no authority over us. But a British subject would respect them. And somebody in a prior context when the authority was more clear and not, you know, not more ceremonial but real authority, they would fear them. And that would be a proper response. Well, this isn't a, a posturing. This is the king of glory. And you're asking about coming to his presence? Well, that's the one who, I would say, fears God and is honored accordingly. And now the final element here is that he swears to his own hurt and does not change. So whereas the various elements of the psalm are the faithful man's disposition toward others, this one appears to be the only personal element addressing a reflective conduct beyond the thematic baseline of verse 2. He does and does not do here, both components reflecting his integrity. He has sworn or extended his sure word, and he will stand by it, even at his own expense and or hardship. Just as he speaks truth in his heart, so also he maintains the integrity of what, that which he's sworn or given his sure word to, even at his own expense. And this brings us to our final section now before David's conclusion. Verse 5, or the first part of verse 5. He does not put out his money at interest nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. How does that fit into our thematic emphasis? Once more, in keeping with the thesis in view, does what is right, does not put out his money at interest, does what is right, does not take a bribe against the innocent. So he maintains integrity, not only in his commitments, swears to his own heart, doesn't change, he doesn't say, well, you have to understand. Well, there are circumstances when we just have to humble ourselves and address, just own where we will fail or own where we had to make changes. But that's not the pattern. Integrity says, you know what? You, you do what you have to do. He has integrity and in his conduct, and, but also here in his finances and their influence. He does not put out his money at interest. And some of you might be like, oh, no, the stock market's immoral. Well, that, I don't know, may or may not be. I'm not really concerned about that at the moment. Andre, you're good. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> He doesn't put out his money and interest. The law, in terms of the Mosaic law, was quite clear. 
who were not to collect interest from another Israelite when providing financial assistance. Contextually, this was addressing hardship loans and not investment loans um, or loans to better oneself for their situation. To take interest in this historic cultural context will put one at odds with finding a place of sojourning in the Lord's tent or dwelling on his holy mountain because the matter was not one of being financially shrewd, but of loving one's neighbor by not seizing upon the misfortunes of another. And of a like nature, but speaking to that which is more overtly predatory is the prohibition of taking a bribe against the innocent or effectively buying a perversion of justice. That's what a bribe is. You're, you're purchasing a perversion of justice. No matter his means or his reasons, the worshiper does not take a bribe against the innocent and thereby disgrace and insult the God of perfect justice. How do you go worship the perfectly just God while yourself indulging in injustice. So while we might not fully appreciate the historical and cultural offense of collecting interest, we must plainly understand the weight of this more severe universal offense of polluting justice with the wicked gifting of finances or goods. And it goes without saying that someone who would be willing to compromise not only their personal integrity, but someone's welfare for financial gain, they're not blameless, but vile. And this is made particularly poignant by the reference to the victim as innocent, an unoffending party that has been victimized. This is wholly antithetical to the character of a worshiper, most plainly not the nature of one who should even bother asking the opening questions of this psalm. And with this, we conclude a concise but full treatment of the nature of one who can be counted among the company of those who sojourn in Yahweh's tent and dwell on his holy mountain. David writes, he who does these things, I'm not saying this is a comprehensive, this is the nature of wisdom. It speaks broadly, but precisely, broad principles that have precise application. He who does these things will never be shaken. He who does these things shall never be moved. The worshiper who shares these qualities stands confidently. And so in a few short verses, we have a pair of questions that receive a concise response, then are further built out and finished with a confident and strong conclusion. And so, David, we read, O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent, who may dwell on your holy mountain, he who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money and interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. So I mentioned a long time ago now, end of the 90s, memorized this psalm. It was short and simple, but it also struck a chord. But why today? Uh, is it just that we can buy more time to, to prepare for James? Well, I am grateful for more time. We're going into a difficult portion of James. But why today? Well, why invest our opening Sunday of the year on Psalm 15? New Year's resolution. <laughs> it's always that guy. <laughs> yes, Andre is correct because millions of people are making resolutions today and in short order most of them will, be, will, will fail 
welcome to the experience of mankind. <laughs> Not all of them will, but um, almost certainly most of them will. And I wanted to put before you a call to make a resolution for which failure is not an option. Because if you're in Christ, then you're a worshiper. And that is no casual experience. It is a sobering calling that presses us to join David in his opening inquiry. Oh, Yahweh, who? Who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? And these are questions that do not fade into the wind, but ones that receive a robust, if not a concise treatment. And where do they bring us? To a place of blessing and divine stability, like a tree planted by streams of water. Therefore, my exhortation to those of you who are in Christ is to resolve to be an unshaken worshiper. If you're looking for a resolution, uh, I'm going to apply myself toward this. Then apply yourself toward this, again, to resolve to be an unshaken worshiper. And for those who are not in Christ, I would exhort you to resolve to stop watching years pass by as you fail to live up to that for which you were designed. You know, people were so excited with the passing of a year and the coming of another one. And if you live long enough, you will see that over and over and over again. And it's just accumulating a debt of failure if you're not a worshiper. Because you're an image bearer who will never find enduring satisfaction, true peace, or lasting hope in anything short of heeding the call to worship your Creator to do what you were properly designed to do. And you can't just say, oh yeah, I'll get to that. No, it's worshipers, God-fears, they ask good questions. They don't say, yeah, so what do I got to do? No, they say, Lord, what? who's fit for this? How can we approach you? So again, for those of you in Christ, resolve to be unshaking, unmoved worshipers, fit to join and sojourning fit to dwell in God's special presence as you engage the Lord of glory. And for those who are not in Christ, stop wasting your life. Stop letting uh, little crystal balls fall and peaches drop and possums if in Harrelson County. Um, and just continuing in this persistent cycle of being satisfied in lesser things. You, by design, ought to be a worshiper. To long to sojourn in Yahweh's tent, to dwell in His holy mountain. And so I would encourage all of us, wherever we stand, to resolve to be in that company. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the testimony that has been provided through David. We think back to just who you made him to be and your kind providence and the shaping of his heart and his character. Even as a youth, he was clearly an ambitious young man who who was confident in you and we had the vantage point of watching him mature as it were and progress through tremendous struggle and and incredible ups and downs and experiences of life ones that would make for just epic stories but they were indeed true history and his experiences and in that process you were shaping him to be a better worshiper it was as it were producing and introducing trials into his life that he would persevere and in persevering would be made perfect. And so we, we thank you for maturing him as a worshiper and we thank you that a mature perspective asks good questions. And Lord, we want to join in David's questions and we want to know what must we do and in response we, want to, we don't want to be naive as though those questions were left idle or unanswered. You've made it plain. 
made it plain what you expect of your people. And so, Lord, would you give us the grace to walk in the wisdom that you've introduced and provided for us here? If we're thinking, well, that's not comprehensive. That doesn't answer everything. Well, it's certainly a, quite a place to start. I think if we've mastered these things, then we've probably accomplished more than the natural man accomplishes in his life. So, Lord, would you produce in us a, an ambition to be faithful, unshaken worshipers? And for those who are not in Christ, we, we do pray that as they think and consider the next year that passes, that it wouldn't be another year of temporal life and experience of no eternal merit, but that they would cry out to you and they would see the value and the joy and the desire and the, the satisfaction in joining the company of those who worship their Creator, worship their Redeemer.